Our sermon text and our scripture reading are the same, and they come from Mark chapter 4. So if you turn with me to Mark chapter 4, if you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles, I see that it's on page something 71, 971, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing that uh, in just a few moments. I'm going to ask Bill Ehlers to come and join me here on the, on the platform. Hey, Bill. Hey, Bill. I'm going to ask Bill Ehlers to come and join me on the platform. He wasn't asleep, I promise. Um, as uh, you will know, Bill was the senior pastor here at Bethesda for 19 years, and then an additional year as the interim pastor, and uh, just before we came. And uh, there's, there's quite a comparison already, right? And just, just in just about every way, he gets the nod. But uh, um, looks, height, you know, that kind of thing, fitness. Um, but we're very glad to have him back, uh, but he's leaving us. Starting next Sunday, he starts his seasonal work at uh, Falcon Lake, the All People's Chapel. All People's Church. All People's Church, uh, where he is, uh, has been called to be the pastor there during the cottage season. And so this is his last Sunday with us, uh, probably until October or November, something around that period of time. And so uh, I'd like for us to pray for Bill as he uh, goes to do ministry there. Let's pray for him. Lord, we thank you for Bill and for his uh, commitment to you, for his uh, long-going commitment to preaching your word, uh, the life that is in your word, the truth that is in your word, and the food that is in your word for us uh, as we go from week to week, month to month, and year to year. We pray your blessing upon him and his ministry. Give him an anointing uh, to work among that people in a way that is fruitful, uh, effective, uh, and life-giving. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He, he, he told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that, quote, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven." Close quote. 
Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. The word of the Lord. God, our Father, we thank you for this snippet of Jesus' teaching. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to hear and believe and obey. We pray your anointing also upon Dr. Neal, our friend and our brother, our elder. We ask that you would watch over him, speak through him, uh, and bear fruit through him. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to uh, echo Mark's uh, gratitude to Bill. Um, Bethesda has been blessed to have long pastorates, um, 19 years or more for Bill, and now maybe 15 years for Mark, when the average pastor is about three years. So we should be grateful uh, that we've had such good pastors here to guide us. And uh, they're not done yet. Bill's going to start a new workout in uh, the White Shell. And I think Kate and I will be visiting him. Uh, periodically out there. So we look, look forward to coming under your leadership again, Bill. So the Great Reset. The Great Reset. If you are following kind of modern culture, you know, COVID has come and COVID seems to be coming to an end. May 1st, if you're involved in the medical world, is a good day. May 1st is the day that the University of Manitoba Medical School is saying you no longer are obliged to wear masks when you come to clinics. Uh, so that's an exciting thing that shows, I guess, some confidence in where we are at in terms of a viral load. Uh, so that's the, kind of the good news about where we are in this transition. And people have talked about this great reset idea. COVID was a major punctuation part in, in world history. And so where are we going to go now? What's, what's going to happen now? The World Economic Forum has put this idea forward of the great reset. And it does seem to divide people along partisan lines. Some think this is a great idea to get to a post-capitalist, post-carbon-based economy, clean the world more equitably. Sounds like a great idea. But others raise fears that this might lead to an unelected group of rich people causing a kind of totalitarian one government. So this kind of causes ideas on both sides of the political ledger. What about for for the church itself? Is there any impact on the church? Well, the leader of the World Economic Forum, who's kind of proposed this idea called The Great Reset, has written a book about this idea, and this is from his book. His name is Klaus Schwab. And many of the things he says here, I think we can all relate to. So this is a quote. 
the scale and breadth of the unfolding technological revolution will usher in economic, social, and cultural changes of such phenomenal proportions that they're almost impossible to envisage. The mind-boggling innovations triggered by the fourth industrial revolution, that is biotechnology and AI, are redefining what it means to be human. The future will challenge our understanding of what it means to be human from both a biological and a social standpoint. Huh, that sounds like it might have some application in the world of the Christian. He goes on to say, this new revolution can lift humanity into a new collective and moral consciousness based on a shared sense of destiny. A new moral consciousness, that's interesting. Different from the one that Jesus taught about? Is it a different moral? So the Great Reset, I think we can see, has some application into the world of metaphysics and where we're going. So what about here at Bethesda? What about you and me? Do we need a Great Reset? Is that the answer? If so, where are we going? Neil, what's the plan? What's the plan for the Great Reset? You must have a plan. There has to be one. You might ask, what's God's plan for Bethesda? You might ask it in even a more personal sense, what's God's plan for me? That sounds like a reasonable question. What is God's plan for me? One of my second pastor's favorite books is this one, called Experiencing God. And I've been looking at this book this week, and it's a really interesting 13 kind of week um, in-depth view of the Christian life. And it's really, really good. If anybody wants to do this with me, maybe over the summer, approach me. I'd love to sit down with you and consider doing this book with you. This book says it's the wrong question to ask what's God's plan for me. The question is, what's God's plan? What's God's plan? So I think that that's kind of got to form the central truth of our message today. What is God's plan? I think you'll see if we look at some key passages of scripture today, it's quite clear. Jesus wants his followers to be loving, joyful, effective, and productive. God's plan is that he wants us to be joyful, loving, effective, and productive. Let's pause and pray. Lord, we live in a world that's just gone through the biggest pandemic in a hundred years, and people have lost their lives and lost their jobs, and they've lost their faith. And some of us have lost our anchor. We've lost our sense of what the future might hold. Help us to get some glimpse of what your teaching on that would be today. Your plan, not our plan. We're grateful for this time together. Amen. So the Christian journey is about helping our hearts become receptive to this idea that Mark read about the seed or the word of God, which is actually the logos. We've talked about, about this before. The seed of God is called the word of God, but the actual translation is logos, and that's basically a, a, a Greek idea combined with a Christian idea that means Jesus. Our hearts need to be 
receptive to the Jesus. And that we need to become productive and effective in that context. And not just hard-working, old-school drudgery, but effective and productive with joy and love in our hearts. So two of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the sower and the parable of the vine, will give us this. And the, the lovely thing about talking about the parable of the sower is that Jesus told us how to interpret it. We don't need to have too much speculation on that one. And then the parable of the vine also really a straightforward teaching about what God wants for us, his people, to be joyful, loving, productive, and effective. A good plan for the future of any people group. So, the seed, the sower of the seed, what's the seed? The seed is the Jesus. And the Jesus is sown into different soils. And we only get really four types of soil to look at. Not a whole bunch, there's just four. And it's kind of remarkably simple when we look at these types of soil as to their receptivity, what happens, and what allows things to move forward productively and effectively. We'll just review these briefly. So the first seed is that that's sown along the path. And again, to remind you, anyone who hears of the word of God and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what is sown along the path. So some simple principles from this metaphor that Jesus uses in his parable. Number one is that the evil one exists. It's a very clear teaching that there's a battle for this truth sown about the logos, the Jesus, in our hearts. And somebody wants to take it away. And Jesus calls that person the evil one or Satan. That he provides active resistance to what happens in our hearts. And I think most of you can probably relate to, the, to that as you're exploring Jesus in your life. You can relate to this. Yeah, I sense a struggle. What about? What about? Questions come. So there's an active kind of resistance to this seed finding its way into your heart. But this idea is simple. It talks about understanding the logos, understanding who Jesus is. So it's a simple question. Do you, do I understand who Jesus is? Who is Jesus? The question that really divides the world. Who is Jesus? You have to start there. And I think the Bible is quite clear. It teaches that Jesus was beginning at creation, was the agent of creation. The Bible is clear that he holds creation together. The Bible teaches us clearly that he was born miraculously, that he lived a perfect life, that he was a hard-working guy. Uh, he was a, probably a stonemason or a, a carpenter, that he was an amazing student of scripture and teacher, that he said that he was going to die for our sins, and he did so willingly, even though it was terribly hard. And he rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father, intervening for you and I with groans. So that's the Jesus. It's an amazing story. Yet he says to you, despite being the creator of the universe, Mark, I love you. I love you. Yannick, I love you. He says that to you. Michelle, he says, I love you. He asks and calls out for the, the God of the universe. That's the story of the Jesus. 
the logos. It's a powerful story. A second type of soil, the rocky ground. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, on account of Jesus, he immediately falls away. So what does that talk about? This heart condition refers to a lack of depth, a lack of spiritual depth. And we're all vulnerable to this lack of depth. And this does require some work. It does require some study. Um, as a doctor, it's funny, people will come to me after maybe three minutes of time on, on the Google machine, and they've got the answer to their problem. And it, it, it's a little superficial often. Um, when you've worked with this for a long time, as I have, you, there's a, often a deeper issue going on. But it's, it's superficial. I did three minutes, and I should know, right? And whatever world you work in, if it's engineering or other things, you probably get the same deal, right? I've studied bridges, Cam, and I know, what to, I know how to fix this. Uh, no, you don't, Neil. You're an idiot. Um, so it's the same way in the spiritual realm. We're being called to depth, to spiritual depth, and that requires some work. This, this passage also teaches that tribulation and persecution will happen because you know Jesus. So don't be surprised. John 16, 33, the promise, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for Jesus has overcome the world. It speaks to the church's responsibility in helping each other get deep. It's kind of fun that the Psalms Bible study has taken 45 years to get through six Psalms. But there is some truth to that being depth. There's a lot to some of these weighty psalms. It's not three poems and three Ps. It's not just alliteration. So question, are you, am I, doing anything to deepen our relationship with Jesus? And what is it? That'd be something we should have a fairly quick answer to. Yes, I am. Here's what I'm doing. And that's our responsibility as the church. And I know Pastor Mark and Pastor Yuri are very dedicated to that. The next heart condition is that among the thorns, the seed that is sown among the thorns. And I think this is where us in North America spend a lot of our time. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is where the one who hears the word, the logos, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and make it unfruitful. The worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. And I think I've been here worrying a lot. Uh, it seems to have started uh, when my friend's son died in October. And I've just been a mess of worry since that time. I preached about worry uh, several months ago. The worry, thank God, isn't making me go to questioning or a lack of depth. It's driving me to hold the hand of the master more. But I must admit it's there. Some situations, it, it actually feels like the word is being choked. You can almost get that, that picture. So 
this teaches us that we will be exposed to things that make us anxious, that we will worry about. If you're a young parent, you're worried about your kids. It seems to make sense, right? If you're a young person, you're worried about what your career is going to look like. Am I going to get straight A's uh, like my friend Atish? We need to help each other through times of anxiety. This teaches us that this soul, this soil, is an anxious soil. It's easy for us to be there. It also teaches us that we need to understand and resist coveting, material coveting. I love this line, the deceitfulness of wealth. He who dies with the most toys does not win. He does not win. The good soil. The good soil is the most amazing to me. Just listen to it. I'm going to teach you the special sauce of the good soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and it yields, in one case, a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. If you're my vintage, and I think probably Bruce and, and Bill will understand the shell bussy principle uh, of theology here. It used to be on the, an old radio station, and Shel Buzzy was a home renovator and a painter. And one of the things he would say was, he'd go through this long, incredibly com complicated diatribe of how to fix your fridge at home, and then say, just that easy. And to most of us who are trying to do home renovations, it wasn't that easy. But this is the, it's just that easy, bearing abundant fruit. Hear the word, understand it. Where's the special sauce? Where's the conference? Where's the book? Where's the speaker? Where's the... Hear the word, understand it. I, I gotta get something more. Come on. They're ha Hear the word, understand it. So I think implicit in this is protection from the evil one. Right? A lack of superficiality being deep. And then getting help as we process the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. Those are all the negatives that seem to get in the way of the simple reality. Hear the word, understand it. And then bear fruit. Deal with this complicated, this complicated area of our world. I think this also calls into the question the idea of can the soil, our hearts, be changed? Are our hearts hardened? A common biblical phrase. Can we help each other? How does a community of people like Bethesda help each other on this journey to bearing fruit with each other? What's God's plan? Well, we help people understand the word. And I can't think of two people more than Mark and Yuri that want that, that love the word of God and are willing to teach it without the kind of accoutrements that our culture often demands without smoke machines and fancy music. Teach the word of God. We need to give people a chance to develop their depth of their relationship with Jesus. Help each other on that journey. Acknowledge that we, we do need to go deep here. Acknowledge and resist the evil one. And become aware of that unsettled heart that you feel when he's messing with you. Become aware of that. Help each other deal with the worries of the world, which will happen. There's going to be trouble. We all know that. 
and then help each other with this life of materialism and coveting. That's what this scripture, scripture teaches. So the four types of soil, the last one is just hear it, understand it. Wow. So the good soil bears fruit. I think that begs the question, well, Neil, what's fruit? What is fruit? The first idea that I think Scripture gives us, and it probably comes to your mind fairly quickly, is the fruit of the Spirit. It's your character. It's how you are as a person, which I think does call into question this idea of being changed by the Logos, having a heart that is soft, that is changeable. And you know them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the people we're called to be. That's the fruit we're called to manifest. Imagine living with someone like that who's 24-7 those nine characteristics. It's kind of like heaven on earth, isn't it? What a beautiful characteristic. Imagine being that person that the guy does flips you the bird at the intersection and he's angry and and you respond with patience and kindness and joy. That's the person we're called to be. So fruit is definitely about our nature. Is it something beyond that? Listen to Titus 3.14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So to be fruitful were to help meet urgent needs through good works. Quite a clear teaching. So fruit and good works seem to be used interchangeably. So fruit is my characteristics, who I am, and I'm involved in good works, productive and effective. Okay, I got it. So you're probably saying, okay now, Einstein, what's the key to bearing godly fruit? There's got to be a key. You have to have a five-year strategic plan based on a SWOT analysis of the world around you. You have to have You have to have read a book by a famous pastor, usually from California, that tells you about the next great thing. Have you read that book lately? You must have. You must have been to a conference on church planning where they dealt with all this, right? Maybe not. I think John 15 provides the answer for us. So abiding in Jesus is associated with bearing fruit, remaining, remaining. So May 5th is an important day for someone who shall not be named and I. It's the 43rd anniversary of our first date where we walked around uh, Assiniboine Park together as aimless young teenagers. Uh, Kate was a teenager, I was much older. It's not that funny. But so 43 years later, we still abide in relationship and remain in relationship. And I will tell you that I love Cato more now than then. And that's what happens from abiding, remaining, settling in for the long term. Settling in for the long term. So abiding in Jesus. He is the source of our productivity and our effectiveness and our love and our joy. 
Jesus wants us to bear fruit, and he enables us to do so. So how does he do it? What is the special sauce? Let's look at John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus is the true vine, and God, the Father, is the vine dresser. Listen to this language again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener that cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Cuts it off! I don't have PowerPoint, so I needed something this week, okay? <laughs> but this, this kind of works, I think, eh? He cuts it off. So I can think of no more unfortunate translation of a Greek word, and I don't know Greek, but if you, if you have any interest in this, this thing, I've talked about it before, it's called the Interlinear Bible, and it's really cool, it has all the, the Greek of the Bible verses, and you just let your little pointer hover over a word, and it gives you the translation of the word, and you can click on that and go to the Greek translation of the word. So I didn't make any of this up, I don't know any of this, I'm trusting the Google machine, uh, and the Interlinear Bible, it's called Bible Hub. So the father is the gardener that, arrow, <clears throat> excuse me, arrow, A-I-R-O, arrow every branch that bears no fruit. But arrow, this is the, directly what it says on Bible Hub, is to lift up, raise up, elevate. The gardening glove, to take that branch, lift it up out of the dirt. That's a very different picture than cut off. Because cut it off doesn't make any sense, especially when we go to the next one, which is prune. I've got some pruning shears here if you're going to be ready for the next one. So lifting it up out of the dirt. And there's a book here called Secrets of the Vine by Bruce Wilkinson that really outlines this translation. And I think it's, it's really quite breathtaking, the difference in that picture for us. The father lifting this wayward branch up out of the dirt. So new branches, new Christian, us Christian people are usually found, they're down the dirt. That's where they start. And when you're in the dirt, you can't bear any fruit. And God wants you to bear fruit. So would God separate that new little dirty branch from the vine? Cut it off? No. Lift it up. Give it a chance. I think the one difference is that there has to be something with the branch saying, I need to be cleaned. I need some help being lifted up. So for the Christian, sin is like dirt. I think this is where Jesus is going with this picture in the, in the vine. The first step is to agree with God that we're dirty, that we're covered in grime, that we're not going to bear any fruit like this, and that the Christian language for that is repentance. 
I agree with God and he starts lifting me up. That's a beautiful picture. It's much a more beautiful picture than the cut off with the shears. We repent of our sin. The church is to help Bethesda. Your plan is to help in that process, to be a place where confession is okay. We acknowledge that we are not a, a, a hotel for saints, we're a hospital for sinners. That's what the church needs to be, right? I'm reading a book about ancient uh, Ireland and the, the Catholics having to confess, confess, and there's all this talk about confession, but the church is to be a place of confession. It is. So step number one, the loving hand of God lifts that branch up out of the dirt. The person agrees with the, the, the vine dresser. I'm dirty. I repent. I want to grow and bear fruit for you. That's a beautiful word picture. And Jesus used this 2,000 years ago. I just find that wild. Step number two on the journey to abundant fruit, being productive and effective in life and joy if your life bears some fruit, God will intervene in your life to help you bear more fruit by showing you the areas in your life that aren't bearing fruit. This can be a tough one for us. The things in your life that have no eternal significance that you seem to spend a lot of time on. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off, arrow lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. So I got the little shears for this one. He prunes, just cutting off little pieces, right? To facilitate the growth. The word for prune, katharai, is first translated in the interlinear Bible as cleanse. Second, translated as purify. And then third, prune. Now, Jesus was talking about a vine, so it makes sense, I think, to use the prune analogy. But the word purify and cleanse, I think, are beautiful words. Katharai. Have you ever seen a vine? Now, Kate's going to get mad at me again because I stole this from the back, and it's not with our current kind of time frame here. But vines in a, in a vineyard look more like this than those bushy plants up there. They're really gnarly, rugged-looking things that have almost no greenery on them. They're just this, this thing. And it's, so there's no wasted energy going to make leaves. It's just to make the fruit. They're wild-looking things. They're not really appealing to look at. Left to its own devices, grape vines would be bushy and have no fruit. They'd look great but have no fruit. And I think you and I... Sometimes that's our tendency. I want to appear a certain way, but not really bear any fruit. 70 to 90% of the previous year's growth is cut off of a vine. So for following this analogy, in your own life, might the master want to be cleaning you of something, purifying you of something? The little, it's taking a little bit away. A little bit away. The previous year's growth got to come away. God will intervene in our lives by cleaning us up. So, again, I think it's more like Mr. Clean than it is like the pruning shears. I think it's Mr. Clean is more appropriate than it is the pruning shears, or even the little shears, 
to help you with all those wasteful activities. All the wasteful activities of your life. Think what they might be. So I have a question for you. Are we bearing any fruit? Are you bearing any fruit? So what did we say fruit was? The characteristics of God in your life, the big nine, the fruits of the Spirit, and then good works, good works. Sticking to our essential truth today about joyful, loving, productive effectiveness, it sounds from this teaching that Christians can be unloving, unjoyful, unaffective, and unproductive. I think it's probably ineffective. Why and how would that happen? That we might be unloving, unjoyful, unproductive for the kingdom, and ineffective. And I think this teaching is that our lives can be so dense with activity, religious and secular, that we don't bear any fruit. Our lives can be so dense with activity that we don't bear any fruit. So I think this is the picture that Jesus is trying to paint. The vine dresser's secret for more is less. The vine dresser's secret for more is less. It's a simple statement. Our vine dresser will purify us, clean us, after we admit that we're in the dirt, so we could bear more fr fruit. He may cut away some immature passions and old religion to make room for greater abundance for his glory. This idea of being purified, you might know the verse 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The word purify is the same word as, as prune. So it's not just the pruning shears. This translation, he would forgive us our sins and prune us from all unrighteousness. The purification idea is important here. I think it's Mr. Clean. So what kind of stuff in your life is choking out the energy that's supposed to go towards fruit? This is a hard conversation. And this is something that's good to have in your small groups and in intimate relationships. Do we have preoccupations, priorities, or passions that have no eternal significance? We can get pretty legalistic about this, and that's the caution, that's the other side of the pendulum. But I love Peterson's rendering of this in the message, lopsided and small-minded pursuits. Am I involved in any lopsided and small-minded pursuits? Maybe the vine dresser wants to clean us of fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, a lack of forgiveness, self-centered, cultural obsessions, golf. Who put that in there? But can you think of something? I like the golf, but it's pretty small-minded and lopsided, isn't it? Purifying, pruning helps us to fulfill God's destiny in our lives. If you are asking for God to show you his will, it probably involves less. It probably involves giving something up, something to be removed. So, fruit, the characteristics in your life, doing good works, effectively and productively. How should that feel to you, to me? Here's a great promise. Bearing fruit 
will be something that is associated with love and joy. Love and joy. Listen to John 15. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Careful. Love and joy related to doing God's work. Our actions are not supposed to be drudgery. Oh, do I have to do that again? That when you're involved in that productive, effective work, he blesses you with a sense of, this is good. I feel good doing this. I feel good being here. I feel joy today. Look for that. What a great thing. What a great thing. So what's the mystical sauce, the secret to bearing productive fruit? Abiding. Remaining. Settling in for the long term. Believing, enduring, persevering. Deep, right? Jesus repeats that word ten times in these six small voices, verses. Can you hear his intent? Can you hear his passion? Remain in me. Remain in me. Why so many times? Does he know that you and I are fickle? I'm taking control of this one. Does the church need to reset or remain? So the secret to bearing fruit, being given time to hear and understand. I like that in the small church. The big church is 20 minutes, we gotta go. I don't know about that. The teachings of Jesus, depth of understanding. We agree with God that we're stuck in the dirt. Honest self-appraisal. The master vine dresser cleans us up, lifts us up out of the dirt. And then with the small shears, not the big ones, starts taking away the wasteful stuff that we do Helps us understand, oh yeah, man, I wasted a lot of time on that. How many easy ways are there to waste time? What do we do? We remain. How does it feel to remain? This idea of abiding, it's abiding in a relationship. And in the best relationship you can have, the relationship with Jesus. It's not just based on facts. Oh, I know Jesus. It's relational not fickle. It's that 4 a.m. in the morning and you're anxious about something and all you're going to say that night is, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I, I love you, Jesus. I'm glad you're with me here, Jesus, because I feel lonely tonight. I haven't got a clue what's going to happen with that bad meeting tomorrow. Thank you, Jesus. It's that intimate of a relationship. It's not plan-based. It's not the conference-based. It's not the pastor's book-based from California. You've been adopted the loving parent adopting you into the family. What does your relationship look like right now? What does your relationship with Jesus look like right now? 
When you go out for dinner, you watch people across the table, and often when they're old, they don't talk at all. They just sit there. When they're young, they don't talk at all. They're just looking at their phones, right? Uh, but you can imagine the intimate relationship holding hands in each other's eyes as they have dinner together. An intense relationship. They laugh and they have joy and they, they, have, they pick meals for each other. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the phone. Maybe that old couple will give them some grace. They've had a long time to talk. At least they're still going out for dinner. The end of our passage makes it clear what love was to Jesus. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Obedience and service and sacrifice is how Jesus defines love. Love to Jesus is an action. The action of sacrifice and obedience. The action of sacrifice and obedience. Does Bethesda need a great reset? Does the world need a great reset, a new cultural way of, of dealing with life? To follow scripture, we need something different. How about the great repentance? I, I didn't want that on the sign outside because nobody would come. How about the great reduction? Much more scriptural than the great reset. How about the great remaining? Remain. How about the great relationship? The great relationship you can have with Jesus. The great reset's kind of weird in many ways to me. I think we need those other four more. The great reset for Bethesda, for you, for me, what does this two passage of scriptures teach us? Here we go in review. It starts with the logos, Jesus, the word of God. People need time to hear and understand Jesus, who Jesus really is. And that's where we come in with each other. Can we help each other learn, hear, and understand? We need to pray for protection from the evil one. We need to pray for protection from superficiality, worry, the deceitfulness of wealth. We need to repent, to reduce, to remain in relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says we need to abide Abide, 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 abide. He says it ten times. Abide in him. What's fruit for us? The characteristics of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Are there specific works prepared for us, for you and I, for Bethesda? I believe there are. I think one thing that's clearly been prepared for us is the refugees. We could be the great refuge for those people. We're called to that. Hopefully they're coming soon. How about others? Of the other newcomers, people from the Ukraine uh, who are coming here in great numbers. We had a weird experience with homeless people this winter. And I've talked to some of you about that was meaningful for you. That maybe we're called to have a different work with homeless people. Uh, one person came to me and said we should be building an apartment on our parking lot, this incredibly valuable piece of real estate, go to the Google machine and look up the West Broadway Commons that All Saint Church built a 12-story kind of specific apartment, culturally appropriate and environmentally safe in association with their church. Maybe it's something like that. Using this amazing building, 
when we kicked those homeless people out of this place, that just felt wrong to me. This felt wrong. Are we supposed to be a sanctuary? Mull that around. We don't have a plan, but I, the, the Lord is calling us to something. Let's bring it back to the personal, and we'll close. We all need to examine our own lives for evidence of fruit. Don't spend your time looking at somebody else's life. This is just for you. If you're clear that your life isn't bearing fruit, you're probably stuck in the dirt. You're probably compromised by sin. Take the loving hand of Jesus and repent. If you just bear a little fruit, God probably will want to prune you and help you work with your priorities. And that may be hard. That may be giving up something you really, really love. But it's just, it's not eternal. Think of purification. Think of our friend, Mr. Clean. This intervention can be intense and it can be emotional. But I think it's important. He teaches this clearly. So the great reset? No. I think the great remain. Remain in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this uh, series of parables you gave. And I just am amazed by the answer Sarah gave earlier. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And to think of a young person knowing that is what a parable is, is so, so important. It shows that the parents and the church and the school that she's involved in are helping her hear the logos, understand the logos, and develop depth. That's what our church is called to, Jesus. Thank you for this time. Amen. Our benediction today is from 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fail. And you will receive a rich welcome into eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This week, go in love, go in joy, go in effectiveness and productiveness. Amen. Amen.